faith of our fathers. Today, we feature Donald Gray Barnhouse. He pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Barnhouse was a pioneer in preaching over the radio. His program was known as the Bible Study Hour. After Dr. Barnhouse remarried, he settled into a home on an 82-acre farm near Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Dr. Barnhouse died on November 5th in 1960, five days after the passing of Percy Crawford. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents an introduction to the Gospels. the Gospel of Mark in the course of these next weeks between now and Christmas when I shall be here uh, almost every morning, every Sunday except one, I believe. But this morning, I want to give to you an, an introductory study on the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ, why there are four of them, and what God has for us in this manner of presentation of truth. Why are there four Gospels? Men have looked upon the Bible as being a human book and said, oh, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or somebody that called himself by that name, sat down and said, well, I'm going to write a biography. I cannot take any such opinion. To me, the Holy Spirit determined before the foundation of the world that there would be these four portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ and gave them to us for a purpose. They are not four biographies of Christ. They are four portraits. Someone says, yes, but if you study them like you would study different historians of the Civil War, you will see that they deal with the same material and use it in different ways. Exactly, but for different purposes. You might have some great character of history and different men might approach the man to write different things about him. One would write a biography, another would approach him from perhaps a political point of view to see his <coughs> works in connection with his governmental position and another with his private life and so on. Another with his writings, I can well imagine that a uh, hundred years from now that five different historians could write about Sir Winston Churchill and one could consider him as Nobel Prize winner of literature and discuss his memoirs. Another could consider his early career. Some might even take the same event in his life and use it to illustrate different points. In Paris, in the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, there is one room in the library as big as this church, with nothing but books and magazine articles about Napoleon. Tens of thousands of volumes about Napoleon. One of these volumes, you open it and it says, at Waterloo, and a man from Mars who had never seen or known it reading that must have said, well, Waterloo must have been the place he was born, but it wasn't. Well, maybe it was his first battle. No, it wasn't. It was his last battle. Well, why does this man begin his book at Waterloo? Because his subject is Napoleon as a strategist. And Josephine isn't mentioned in the whole book. That doesn't mean she didn't exist. You could never have an argument from silence. The man's purpose was one thing. 
Another man would take and write a biography from quite a different point of view. Now the reason there are four Gospels is that God wants to present us the Lord Jesus Christ in various aspects. The Gospels cannot be harmonized. Any attempt to write a harmony of the Gospels is as foolish as to attempt to write the biography of the pre-incarnate Christ. He who was eternally. How many, many people have made the mistake of saying, well, Jesus was born, he lived, and he died, and there's the cross, and uh, maybe the resurrection is a sort of a postscript. And the result is they look at the cross as being a sort of the climax of his life, not realizing that we must reach back through the open tomb to touch the cross. That's why it should never have a cadaver. It should never be a crucifix. But a cross that is bare because we are on the resurrection side of the cross. Now, throughout the centuries, in the churches and in the printing and in the illumination of manuscripts, in missals and in old handwritten Bibles, in the windows of churches, they have made four symbols for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now, they have taken these symbols from the cherubim in the book of Ezekiel and from the four living creatures in the book of Revelation, and rightly or wrongly, they have applied them to the four Gospels for centuries, and I believe rightly. Uh, because they are, of course, the aspects of these four cherubim as presented in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation where the writers say one of them had a face like a lion, the other had a face like an ox, the other had a face like a man, the other had a face like an eagle. Now Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, we see him thus as the lion and thinking of him in this way we expect to find him as the son of Abraham connected with a kingdom and so with Abraham's seed. And that is the way Matthew presents him. The ox, on the other hand, is the symbol of service. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain. And again we read, much increases by the strength of the ox. And under this figure we expect to find the Lord Jesus Christ as the patient laborer on behalf of others and offering himself in service for them, if necessary, as a perfect sacrifice, and then as food after death. And thus we find him in Mark. And that will be the center of our theme as we go more into the gospel next week. The cherubim with the face of a man needs no comment, because the face of a man speaks of human sympathy. In Hosea we read, I drew them with the cords of a man, with bands of love. And here we see the, the Son of Man, one who, who could have compassion on others, on the ignorant, it says, seeing that he also is compassed with infirmities. And we read in the scripture that he, for as much as the children were partakers of flesh and blood, himself likewise took part of the same. And very different was the fourth of these symbols, the eagle. Its ways are above the earth. We read in the book of Proverbs, the way of the eagle in the air is too wonderful for me. Much on the wing, 
The eagle possesses a gift that probably no other eye possesses in any other creature. The eagle's eye can look straight at the sun at noonday without being hurt by the light. It has that power of gazing with undazzled eyes upon the sun itself. And thus it was that the eagle is the symbol of John who reveals us as the Word made flesh to dwell among us. Now, different fathers of the church back over the centuries had arguments sometime as to which symbol represented which one of the Gospels. They all agreed the eagle was John. They all agreed that the man was Luke, but some thought that Mark was the lion and Matthew the ox and vice versa. In the Occidental Church, the Oriental Church, there was a difference. That's why if you go to Venice today, the great church of St. Mark's has the column up the side with the lion of St. Mark's. But in almost no other church in Europe does a lion connected with Mark. It's always the ox. For the majority of the church fathers and throughout all history, they spoke of Mark as the servant gospel. Now, we can understand the difference of these fathers in confusing these two because sometimes if you look at a building from a great distance, you confuse two sides. You can't tell which is one wall and which is the other because of the angle and the distance. And when men are distant from the Gospels, perhaps they could not see them as we can see them today after 2,000 years of commentaries and study. But here... The Lord Jesus took upon him the form of a servant, and he was found in fashion as man, and naturally the two go together. But it is as the servant that we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ, giving us the great example for serving others. Uh, there's a very interesting thing about our Lord Jesus Christ that comes out of one of the most ancient fathers, that in the early church they had a tradition but when Jesus was here on earth, different people looked at him and gave an absolutely different description of him. That he appeared, though he was one being, that different people saw him even in different physical characteristics. I like that. I remember the story of the little African boy who was asked to draw a picture of Jesus and the twelve disciples, and he made his childish drawing and had them around, and one man in the center, he made very black. And they said, who's that? He said, why, that's Jesus. And I, I liked it that the little African boy in the heart of Africa could, should think of Jesus as being like himself. We know, of course, that the Lord was a Jew of the stock of Israel, of the stock of Israel and of the tribe of Judah. But uh, I'm, I'm quite sure that many of us have always thought of the Lord Jesus as, as living in our surroundings, understanding us, able to go along with us, do what we're doing uh, with us, and leading us. And uh, thus it is that as everyone saw Jesus uh, through his own point of, of view, thus it is that we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see them from the point of view of our own background. Now, this is very important because in the schools and theological seminaries today, the modernists, the liberals, the critics uh, try to tell you that these are human documents. They 
This was a great theory invented in Germany in the last century that the Gospels were human documents and that they came from an original source that they called Q, from the German noun Quellen, which means source, and that Mark was perhaps the oldest and that somebody copied from him. I don't believe there's any such thing. And I believe that any attempt to study the Gospels that way is, is the death of the spiritual perception of the truth. And that if anybody is going to know the Gospels, they must lay aside entirely any thought of the human mechanism by which the Gospel came and realize that God Almighty spoke through these individuals in a divine way in order to communicate with us truth exactly as he, want, as he wanted. We will understand in the measure that God speaks to our hearts to bless us. I am quite sure that the average man reading the book of Genesis would never have thought of Abraham's two wives as representing the Old Testament and the New Testament. That Hagar represented the law and that uh, Sarah represented grace. <clears throat> but when we come to the book of Galatians, we find the Holy Spirit giving us a whole chapter to tell us that this was an allegory and that these women represent uh, the law and that the child that Abraham had by the flesh was a legal child and that God could never accept him while the one that came by promise was the picture of the New Testament. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us that. We don't find it naturally. I remember when I first came to this church, I once spoke on the types of the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament, and there was a woman who now is in heaven who, who came to me after the, the meeting and she said, but I don't understand. Uh, why, why should we think of all these things as being types? When, when the Lord said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again, wasn't it quite natural for them to speak of, uh, think of the temple? And I said, that's exactly the point. It was natural. But God does not want us to think naturally. God wants us to think supernaturally. And the whole of our spiritual training is in order to, to cause us to think supernaturally and to get that which he wants us to have out of the heart of the scriptures. Now I look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how, how differently they look to me and to uh, the German theologian Bultmann who has come up in the last three or four years with uh, probably one of the greatest attacks ever made on the New Testament. Is, is now made by this, this figure whose name is rising rapidly in the theological world because of his theory of demythologizing. For he says that every one of these things are myths and that they have to be exploded. And the modernists who have been dynamited out of other positions as the years have gone by are flocking to him and he is becoming the new and the popular name among the unbelievers. Who, who want to call themselves Christians without believing in Christ, and who want to have a Bible without believing that God gave it. Now, when I look at the New Testament, I see it as totally different than Bultmann looking from his eyes. And yet, how far my view of the Gospels is inferior to that of those who are already in heaven and who can see and know as they are known. How different the skies are to an astronomer and to a savage in the heart of the Amazonian jungle. So it is with Christ. Every person that looks at Christ sees Christ out of the aspect of his own life. To one, 
who does not believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says Jesus is nothing more than a root out of a dry ground. Who hath believed our report? A root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness nor any beauty that we should desire. But to others, when we look at him, he's altogether lovely and the fairest of 10,000. See, the difference is in the point of view. There's Jesus. He's a root out of a dry ground. He's the fairest of 10,000. Beauty is always in the eye of the beholder. And thus it is with Christian truth. No one can see except with our, his own measure and from his own standing point. And thus it is that we must be very careful that we've been brought by God to look from his point of view if we're to understand truth. Now these four men that wrote the Gospels, I want you to see how, how admirably God had chosen them through all their life and, and tuned them like instruments in an orchestra. For when an orchestra is to play, each instrument is tuned separately and has its own part. And thus Matthew uh, reflects Jesus Christ as seen from that background of the man and God chose that man and fitted him to play that theme. Now Mark was a servant. It's very interesting, probably lots of people don't realize that Mark was a menial servant, this writer. If you turn to Acts chapter 12 and verse 25, it says that Paul and the others had been, Barnabas had been in a certain home and they'd gone into the home of Mary, the mother of John, who was surnamed Mark. And they took Mark with him. And in chapter Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, it said they had Mark or John with them as their minister. Now, this word minister is very interesting in the Greek. It translates five different Greek words, our English word minister. Uh, if you take the word angelos, angel, it's once or twice translated minister. The word apostolos, which is trans oh, the word apostle, is also translated minister. The word which is given us deacon is translated minister. And then there's a fourth word translated minister that comes from the same word that is given us liturgy, someone who is ministering at spiritual things. But the fifth word that's used here and is the lowest of all the ranks. It's huperetes, and in Greek it means an under rower. They didn't have steamships, they had triremes. And the man who had oars here and oars here and oars here, the lowest of the slaves, the hardest, was the one that had the short, choppy oar and was the lowest rower. He was the lowest sailor, not even private first class, not even uh, uh, one who had had any, any advancement at all. And so it was the Greek word for the common hand, any subordinate, a menial. And they had John Mark to be their minister. And I think it's wonderful that God said, I'm going to take Mark and I'm going to have him write the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he'll see Jesus from his point of view. You know, a servant doesn't look at things the same way men do. Uh, years ago, I found a verse in Proverbs. It said, as the eye of the servant is on the hand of his master, so I look for thee. I travel a great deal, and just at that time I was on Pullman, traveling from Cleveland to New York. And in the morning, when the porter came, he says, you want to brush, brush off? So he came and brushed me off. And he brushed me, brushed, and I put my hand in his pocket. Uh, I put my hand in my pocket. Uh, <laughs> to give. 
I put my hand in my pocket to get a tip. And I pulled my hand out and he stopped. And he wasn't looking at me and I was looking at his eye to test this verse in the Bible. And he never stopped looking at my eye. Uh, at my, he never stopped looking at my hand. And then suddenly I, I put my hand back in my pocket and he began to brush again. I pulled my hand out of my pocket and he stopped brushing. And I did it once more and he went on brushing and finally I gave him the tip and I had shown the fact that the Bible was true, that the eye of the servant is on the hand of the master. And, and, and naturally, anyone looking from that point of view is going to see things from that point of view. A child sees the whole world from knee height as he walks through the crowds with his mother uh, and in the elevators or in the crowds at the department store. And a servant sees things from the point of the servant. And Mark was specially tuned by God for this purpose. And as we go on, we will see this man speaking and telling. And we shall learn, I am sure, we shall be able to learn how we are better to serve. For God has put us here in order that we may serve others, in order that we may witness for him, in order that we may be his. Now I'm, I'm skipping over Luke and John and how they had been chosen uh, for their purposes to come to uh, this last point. Uh, the difference in viewpoint that men have on the Gospels, I am persuaded, depends on the spiritual view of the beholder. We see the higher critic that wants to tear apart uh, the, the scripture and find a, a human structure in the midst. Remember, uh, and I think this will illustrate it to us, that in the book of Acts it tells us in the 11th chapter that Barnabas, the son of consolation, went to Antioch. And he arrived there among that group of believers, and it says this, that when he saw the grace of God in the believers, he was glad and exhorted them. And I thought to myself that when if, if Pontius Pilate had arrived in Antioch, he wouldn't have seen grace of God in believers. Only a Christian can understand Christians. Only one who himself is a believer can understand believers. And when Barnabas saw the grace of God in them, he was glad. And the next line says, because he was a good man and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because, very definitely, they're linked together. He saw the grace of God in them because he was a good man filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm quite sure that nobody can see the inspiration of the Bible. No man can understand the verbal inspiration of the Bible unless he himself is filled with the Holy Spirit who inspired only the man who seeks to approach the book naturally will find it to be a natural book. When the man approaches it from the supernatural point of view, then he will find it supernaturally. For God has made us with different factors in our being. The Jews asked for signs. And the result was that they didn't understand spiritual truth at all. They should have asked that the veil should be removed from their eyes. For if they'd asked that the veil be removed from their eyes, then they would have been able to see. They, they might have said, well, there's no proof that Jesus is God. Proof. What do you mean proof? 
We want proof that Jesus is the Son of God. There was no proof to their hearts because the veil was over their mind. Now our senses can judge sensual things. Bite your senses without your brain or anything else. Your senses can judge that fire is hot and that ice is cold. Senses judge sensual things. The intellect can judge intellectual things. You can't judge a mathematical problem with your fingertips. That's senses, that's for sensual things. Intelligence for intellectual things. But it takes the spirit to judge spiritual truth. And that's why we read in Corinthians, the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. So we approach this gospel, the gospel that has been uh, the object of more uh, tearing apart by the scholars than any other part of the New Testament. And we're going to it with this concept, God gave it. God trained the menial servant and gave him this revelation and he wrote it down. And God gave it to him in the terms that he wanted us to have it. And it's going to show us the Lord Jesus Christ as a menial, taking a towel to wash the disciples' feet as John tells. But we'll see him in many other such actions. And as we thus see him, I trust that it shall do for you what I want it to do for myself. That it will help us to understand that the Christian life is a life that's not merely talking doctrine, but that which is living and exemplifying Christ and taking him to our own sphere of life. He was the Word made flesh to dwell among us. You say, but you don't know, I'm, I'm just a stenographer down at... O'Reilly and O'Brien's law firm, all right? God wants the Word made flesh in you, in your flesh, dwelling there in that law office. You may say, but I'm just a simple housewife living out there in Upper Derby in a small house, and I have that to do with And God wants the Word made in your flesh and dwelling there as a housewife. You may say, well, I'm a student living under these circumstances, and God wants Christ in you in those circumstances. And that is exactly what God has, is, is doing in calling you and in calling me to live our lives as his servants here among men, saved ourselves and on the rock Christ Jesus in order that we might carry him to others. The Lord willing, we'll begin with the first chapter next week. There's so much to see as we come to study these great truths. But if I can leave with you this one thought, that God has called you and me to be servants, and that through the servant gospel, we shall seek to find our place and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in the place where he has put us to live our lives. You've been listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.